Hey, thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. If this teaching leaves you with a question about the content or a story of what God is doing in your life, please send a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church because we'd love to hear from you. Um, This morning, I want us to really consider just kind of a few questions around the theme of tolerance. I want to consider what does it mean to be tolerant and what happens when one of the most tolerant societies in the world begins slipping toward violent intolerance. And that's just light stuff this morning. Um, And we're in episode three of a series we're calling The Sovereign. And what we're doing is we're trying to experience the book of Esther, which is a book in the Old Testament of our Bibles, which is a Hebrew story. Um, uh, We're looking at the book of Esther, and we're trying to think of it as if it's a binge-worthy Netflix show. And so, so far, we've covered two episodes, which have pretty closely aligned with the first two chapters. If you feel behind, in fact, you could take about five minutes and read through those chapters and feel caught up already. But in episode one, which we called The Refusal, we talked about how God is at work even when it seems like he's not there. We found out that we're in the book of Esther, we're in the fifth century BC, 500 years before Jesus, at the height of the Persian Empire. The Jews are in exile from their land of Israel, and Xerxes, the king of the largest empire in the world, has just deposed his wife Vashti. Um, In episode two, which we called The Contest, we talked about how God can redeem even the messiest sexual histories. I heard a lot from a lot of you last week about how God spoke to you, and so I encourage you, if you didn't get to hear episode two, go back and listen to that. But we met the only two Jewish characters in the story, Jewish cousins named Esther and Mordecai. Um, And Esther, after being forced into a crude contest to be the next queen, ends up winning um, and has favor shown upon her. And she moves from Jewish orphan to Persian royalty. Um, And in episode three, five years have actually passed since episode two. So I think about eight years have passed so far in the story. And in episode three, we're going to read about the event that becomes what I call the ticking uh, ticking time bomb in this story. Um, And we're going to look at what happens when tolerance breaks down in uh, society. So if you thought last week was dark, get ready for this week. We're going to be um, in Esther chapter, if you want to go to the next slide, Esther chapter 2, verses 19 through chapter 3, verse 15. And we're calling this episode uh, The Letter. And we're going to read it as we go, unpack it, um, and we're going to focus a lot of our time in the middle of this passage around verses 3, 8 through 9, but we've got to get up to those verses. Um, We're going to spend most of our time there this morning. So I'm going to go ahead and jump in and read Esther chapter 2, 19 through 20. This is a little scene that happened at the end of last week's, uh, what we talked about last week, and in between this and the, the scene we're going to spend most of our time on today. It says this, when the young women were assembled a second time, Uh, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. The key fact here is that she is a Jew, again, in exile, who's now at the Persian royalty. And she is hiding her nationality. She's hiding her religious heritage. Nobody yet knows who she is or where she's from. She's keeping that hidden. It says this, During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, which is where he works. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. 
And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. Believe it or not, that's the first of multiple times people will be impaled in the book of Esther. All this was recorded in the book of the annals of the presence of the king. This is one of those scenes that when you read it and you're reading through the book of Esther like we are right now, you kind of wonder, why is this here? Maybe you've been watching a television show or reading a book and there's been a scene and you're like, I don't know how this moves the story forward. I don't really know why this scene is here, why it's super relevant. Of course, he saves his life, but why is it moving the story forward? And that's something we're going to find out. I had to talk about this scene because in a few weeks, it's going to come back and we're going to find out why it's relevant. But what happens here is Mordecai saves King Xerxes' life. Mordecai is a Jew and he saves King Xerxes' life from from an assassination attempt after essentially overhearing hearing some water cooler gossip at the king's gate. The king's gate is a large building that's on the edge of the palace property that anybody who's walking in through, kind of like this hallway here, anybody who's walking in through had to walk through this gate and down this long hallway. And on either side, there was buildings on either side of that hallway where people sat and did work. And so anybody entering into the palace walked through this hallway. And that's where Mordecai was. And that, that, that's going to come up again in just a minute. Um, and so, anyways, that's all. And then all that happens is he ends up saving the king's life, and he, the king makes a note of it in his diary. That's basically it. It says, life saved today, the end. And then it's kind of put away, and that fact is just stocked away until later in the story. Let's move on now to Esther chapter 3, verse 1, where we finish out our cast of characters. It says this, after these events which we're going to find out is actually five years after the events that just took place. King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, an Agagite. Everyone say Agagite. Agagite. Elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. In this section, we meet Haman, um, the arch villain of this story. And it's kind of strange to see this little scene follow on the tales of the scene we just read. Because if somebody had saved your life who worked for you, Mordecai, um, you think you would have given him a promotion. But what we find out is he doesn't get a promotion. In fact, he's pretty much forgotten about. And instead, this other completely unknown character we haven't even heard of in the first two chapters, Haman shows up and he gets promoted to second in command over the entire kingdom. Essentially, the prime minister. If King Xerxes, if it was British royalty, you have King Xerxes, who's a royal kind of line. And then you have this guy, uh, Haman, who's functioning as sort of a prime minister who's executing and the laws and the laws of the land and writing and, and basically leading. Um, and there's an important fact here that I had you say out loud, and it's the word Agagite. This isn't one of those just thrown in words. If you're reading through the Old Testament, if you're like me, even when I read through this the first time, that word meant nothing to me. And the reason that word meant nothing to me is because I'm not a, a 5th century BC Jew, because if I was a 5th century BC Jew and I heard this story being read, and I heard that Haman was an Agagite, my blood would begin to boil. I would begin to feel something in my bones because that word is a loaded word. It's not just like an interesting pointer to his ethnicity. It's actually telling us something about his character, telling us something about who he is. We have to get we have to go back and do history yet again. It's like the third week in a row of doing a lot of, of Hebrew history. But what you have to know is that when the Hebrews were rescued out of slavery in Egypt, that's the story that's told in Exodus. When they were rescued out of slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses, they wandered through the wilderness. And as soon as they wandered into the wilderness, they were attacked by a nation called the Amalekites, who were basically pirates and terrorists, who attacked this group of people as they were wandering through the wilderness. And Moses 
Moses says about them that the Lord is forever going to be at war with this group. In other words, he's saying that these Amalekites are going to be forever enemies of Israel. You fast forward a few centuries. Israel is now settled in the land of Canaan. It's now called Israel. And they get their first king, King Saul. And at the same time, the Amalekites have continued to live on, continued to grow, and they have another king, King Agag. You might hear that in the word Agagite. So the king of the Amalekites is named King Agag, and Saul and Agag go to battle with each other again. And King Saul ends up uh, destroying everybody, but leaving King Agag alive. And what ends up happening is that the word Agag or Agagite basically becomes a slur for anybody who is an enemy of the Jews. From this point onward, anybody that comes against the Jews, anybody that makes their lives difficult, anybody that attacks them, they just call an Agagite. And so when Haman is referred to as an Agagite here, it could be that he is actually a descendant of Agag, but what's likely happening is we're saying, this guy's going to be trouble. When he's being introduced in this way as the Agagite, there's this sense that you can expect this guy to cause the Jews some trouble. Karen Jobes, a commentator uh, who I've been reading throughout this, she says, by using this term, the author is characterizing him as anti-Semitic, an enemy of the Jews. It's a loaded word. With, an echo, with echoes of an age-old conflict. So as you know, we've been casting characters throughout this. You know, we've been considering it a Netflix show. And today we get to fill out the rest of our cast. We're not going to cast any extras. Um, but this is our cast so far. Um, we have Tony Shalhoub playing King Xerxes. Golshifta Farahani was only in the first episode as Queen Vashti. She's not coming back. Jeff Goldblum as Mordecai. Gal Gadot. Um, Wonder Woman as Esther. And I did a lot of thinking about who to cast. For Haman. Haman is an arch villain. He's power hungry. He's second in command. He's looking for ways to basically take over. And one person kept coming to mind. It's the anime, it's Jafar from the animated classic Aladdin. I realize this isn't possible to cast him in this way, so we're going to do the, uh, the one who played him in the live-action remake, um, Marwan Kanzari. He actually, critics did not like his portrayal of Jafar, but we're going to give him a second chance um, in our version of the story. And so we have basically our whole cast filled out at this point. Now let's read on. So as you're reading, you're free to imagine these characters. So let's read on in chapter 3, verse 2 through 6. It says this, all the royal officials at the king's gate, so that's, they're walking, we could, we could literally imagine, this is the king's gate, they're walking down this hallway here. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai, the Jewish character in the story, but Mordecai would not kneel down and pay him honor. Then the royal officials, basically his squad at the king's gate, asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. Everyone say tolerated. It's going to be an important word for us. For he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai uh, would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. And it's a bit of an overreaction here. He says, instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So let's imagine this scene. We're at the king's gate, and Mordecai has essentially broken royal protocol. Um, and refuses to bow down when Haman walks through the gate, even though Haman is there representing the king. And, at, and he takes this as a personal insult to him, and Haman decides, as a response to this personal insult, to write, to write essentially a genocidal policy to wipe out an entire people group from the kingdom of Persia. 
what's going on here. Uh, the royal protocol would have been for people to bow down to the king or anybody who's working for the king when they walk through. Um, and the reason why, it's kind, of, kind of think of it like royal protocol today for, the, for British royalty, you know, certain ways you have to behave around them. But there's more going on here. That in the ancient world, royalty was often considered divine, an incarnation of the God. So to bow down to the king or the person representing the king, in this case Haman, could be perceived as an act of worship which for Mordecai, as a Jew, would have been an act of idolatry because he worshipped only one God. In fact, the reason you can think about this is because about a century earlier, a hundred years earlier, when the Jews were first exiled from their homeland, one of the first Jews' name was Daniel. Everyone say Daniel. There's a story of another exile in the Old Testament called Daniel, and there's multiple exiles in that story. And what happens to Daniel is Daniel has this point in Daniel chapter 6 where he's worked for King Nebuchadnezzar. Now he's working for King Darius, and King Darius's staff has this idea, and they say, hey, King Darius, and it's because they don't like Daniel. They say, hey, Darius, let's write a law that says people are only allowed to worship you as their God and only allowed to bow before you. And Daniel, a Jewish exile, says, I can't do that. And so he keeps praying and he keeps worshiping his own God, he gets reported to the king, and he gets thrown in the lion's den, and he's eventually rescued from that. That story might not have been written down yet, but it probably been passed down from generation to generation. The Daniel story would have been the kind of story that was told at campfires and family reunions, the kind of story that would have formed his imagination. And so you can imagine this moment where he's faced with this opportunity where he's going to bow down to Haman or not. This story is maybe ringing through his head, and he's thinking that just like Daniel, I have this moment in my life where I can assert my Jewish identity, where I can remember who I am. And so he does that, and he acts in that way. And Mike Cosper, who I've also quoted throughout this series, wrote a book on Esther, and here's how he describes a little bit of what's going on. He says, Haman was the embodiment of the idolatry of power. He was vested with all the king's authority, and in a world where authority was likened to divinity, the symbolism of bowing down was much more than a sign of deference or respect. It was a recognition of this divinity-authority connection. It was an act of worship. Mordecai's conscience was pushed to its limits, and now, like Daniel before him who would not worship Darius, Mordecai wouldn't bow. It was a moment of spiritual awakening. We're, we're going to come back to that idea next week, forced in part by the fact that Haman was an Agagite. Now, you could also say, at, a, at his worst, maybe Mordecai just didn't like Haman, and so he just didn't want to participate and bow down and show him respect. But what's likely going on is he didn't want to worship him, and he was asserting who he was. And so the question then is posed to Haman by his staff, by his team. They come up to him and they say, will this kind of religious dissension be tolerated? Will this kind of religious dissension be tolerated? And they use that word in chapter 3, verse 4. And that's going to be our key word this morning. How long will those in power tolerate the behaviors of a religious minority within their empire? When will it no longer be to their profit to do so? Let's read on now in Esther chapter 3, verse 7. It says this, In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, that's where we find out five more years have passed. In the first month, the month of Nisan, the pure, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. And the lot fell in the twelfth month, the month of Adar. They're using a Jewish calendar here because um, there are Jews telling this story. Um, who are telling it, to, telling it to one another. And so to decide when he's going to have the Jews wiped out, um, what he does 
is uh, he does what many people in the ancient world would do when they wanted to make a decision. They would do something called casting lots, so they use the word poor or pure here, um, which are essentially modern-day dice that are thrown and to see, basically you're, you're trying to find out what the gods might, you're trying to divine the gods to see what they might think about when's the best time to do the action you're trying to decide to do. And so what it lands on is essentially what he finds out is, he, is he's going to do it 11 months later. So he's going to try to get a law written that 11 months from now will mean that all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, are wiped out. And, and that's, that's kind of what happens in verse 7. Going on to verse 8 now, and this is where we're going to spend a lot of our time. It says this in verse 8. It says, Then Haman essentially calls a one-on-one with King Xerxes and says to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all, all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Everyone say tolerate. Again, that's our key word this morning. So after casting lots to divine kind of what the gods wanted, and you can almost wonder if God's own, our God's own hand was in this, Haman asked for a one-on-one meeting with King Xerxes to make his request. But notice how vague he is in his request. Notice that here he never says who he's trying to have killed. He also never says why. He says they break the king's commands, but what he doesn't say is a very specific command, the command to bow before him. And so he doesn't say really who they are. He keeps it very vague. And he doesn't really even give a strong reason of why, specifically, he's bringing this request to him at this moment. And while Haman in this paragraph is describing the Jews in ancient Persia, we know that as we're reading it, there's some interesting parallels with how he describes the Jews and how the New Testament later will describe the church as it's navigating a pluralistic society. This is another word I want to talk about this morning, this word pluralism. Um, I'm going to bring you back to English class for a minute. Uh, The word plural means more than one, just as singular means one. And if a society is pluralistic, what that means is it's a society where there are more than one belief system one, more than one belief system present in that society. It's not just all, there have been many societies throughout history that have been all one religion, even Christian societies in that way, that are for the most part, there's one official religion, everybody has it. That's called a monolithic society. A pluralistic society, though, is a society where there are many religions, many belief systems, many non-belief systems, many ways to be in the world that are permitted to flourish at the same time rather than just one uniform system. The Persian Empire, which had 127 provinces, was pretty pluralistic. It had probably some things that they asked everybody to do. For example, bow down to Haman, or bow down to the king. But for the most part, there was a lot of people were permitted to uh, retain their religious identities, were permitted to retain their beliefs, were re- permitted to retain some of their rituals. And so for the, while there might have been some shared stuff across the whole Persian Empire, they were able to retain a lot of their own beliefs as well. And when you look at our own cultural moment, it's very similar to ancient Persia in that way. There's no dominant or uniform belief system, and each religion, or lack thereof, is permitted to flourish in our society, um, all alongside of one another, even if they disagree with each other. Um, In other words, everyone isn't forced to adopt the same religion as part of citizenship in order to be present here. And there's been some historical um, stretches where Christianity has been the shared belief across the society, um, especially when Christians were in positions of power. But it seems that the norm was that Christianity would have to learn how to thrive among other options. 
very much like where we are today. It seems like the norm again was that Christianity would have to thrive among other options in a pluralistic society like the one I'm describing. And when you read this section from Haman, you see some parallels with how Peter describes the earliest Christians and how the church is supposed to be. The first one is this, is that they're dispersed rather than isolated. They're dispersed rather than isolated. Notice what Haman says. He says, there's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. In other words, instead of living on their own, at this point, the Jews are in exile. They're not living in their homeland, and they're spread all across the empire. Um, And the church, in the same way throughout history, instead of cloistering, cloistering ourselves off from the world or having our own little nation, as people have tried to do throughout history, we are actually spread out among every neighborhood and nation. We're living neighbor to neighbor with people who believe things radically different than us. Listen to the similarity in the language with how Peter describes Christians in the early church. We read this letter as part of our series on exiles last or in the fall. He says, to God's elect... Notice he calls them exiles. He's referring now to us, the church, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And at this point, he's talking about the Roman Empire rather than the Persian Empire. So not only are we also dispersed, how he describes the Jews and how the church is is also meant to be different rather than identical with the culture around us. The whole phrase that we went over uh, over and over again in that exile series is we have to be different to make a difference. But when you look at the exiled Jews, Haman says that their customs are different from those of all the other people. In other words, the Jews looked and, and acted differently than everybody that they lived around. There were some differences in behavior. They weren't a carbon copy of the culture. There were some things about Persian culture that the Jews could affirm and say, that's good. We like that. We're okay with that. And there were other things about Persian culture that they said, we can't participate in that. We can't do that. Um, The same is true with the church. Instead of looking exactly like everyone else, which is what sometimes people want the church to do, we have things that make us different from those around us. Um, There are certain things in our culture that we can affirm as good and certain things that we have to reject. Peter writes something like this again to the exiles a little later. He says, dear friend, now he's writing to the church, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. He goes on to say, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Very similar to how Jews and exiles are meant to live is how the church is meant to live in a pluralistic society as well. And finally, and I qualify this, sometimes they're disobedient. Sometimes they're disobedient. Haman says, not totally truthfully, but he says about these exiled Jews, they do not obey the king's laws, which again isn't completely true because for the most part, for decades, they have been. But there's one very specific law that relates to worshiping him that he, they're disobeying at this point because it's out of step with what they know about the true God. And so they're breaking this law, trying to be obedient to God's law. And we find out later, again, the same is true of the church. The church obeys most laws that are governing a nation that we're residing in. But there comes time where God's law might supersede the law that we're being asked to obey, and there's a time to be disobedient. And Peter hints at that in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you want to listen to that, there's a whole series on it called Exiles from the Fall. You can listen to all of that, including one that's on politics, um, to get a better sense of what I'm talking about there. But the main thing is that there's a lot of similarities here between the way Haman describes the Jews in exile and the way that the New Testament describes how the church is meant to be in the world as well. This kind of exile status where we're living not where everybody is Christians all the time, but where we're one group among many groups that we share a neighborhood with. And so there's all these similarities, but sometimes, this is what we're going to see happen in this story, 
Sometimes a pluralistic society like ancient Persia works just fine. You could think of it like roommates who are living together and everything's fine for a while. This, pluralism is just we have cultural roommates. We have a bunch of different culturals and religious identities living together. And for a while, everything's, are, everything's fine. And then someone doesn't do the dishes. And then someone comes home late. And all of a sudden, you have these problems with your cultural roommates. And that's what happens in this story right here and in our own world today, is that once in a while, something will happen that will cause pluralism to break down. And I think that's what we're seeing happen in this passage. So let's go on a little bit. Um, We're going to come back to the passage in just a sec. We've got to do a lot of build-up to it. But in order for a pluralistic society to function... Again, one where there are multiple religious identities, multiple belief systems. There has to be a level of tolerance in society. In other words, pluralism, multiple groups of people in one place, can't survive unless we're willing to tolerate one another. Now, again, tolerate is not a super pleasant word. Um, if, if your wife or husband told you, I'm just going to tolerate you, um, it's not like the most loving language that you could put in your vows. Um, but that's, that's the reality of pluralism. They can't survive without tolerance and without Um, being okay with each other's existence. In order for people of different value systems to share the same neighborhood, each of those groups has to be okay with it, even if they think the other group is completely wrong on everything. And I think that the word tolerance has a lot of baggage for Christians and non-Christians alike. And I think one of the reasons is is because we need to redefine it. At first, I want to define what I think, how tolerance gets understood a lot, and I'm going to call it sloppy tolerance. Um, And what sloppy tolerance is... Um, is it's the kind of tolerance where tolerating someone means leaving your beliefs at the door whenever you go into spaces where other people will be, whether that's politics or universities or work or school or whatever. You have to leave your beliefs at the door and go for some squishy middle where everybody approves. It tends to minimize real differences between people that we actually have and force us all to fit in some sloppy middle. And in this in sloppy tolerance, it's dangerous to actually convince somebody to, that they're wrong. It's dangerous to try to persuade somebody that they might be thinking wrong about something. And I think we need to move away from that definition of tolerance towards something more helpful. And this is where Tim Keller can be a little bit helpful. Tim Keller is a pastor in one of the most pluralistic cities in the world, in New York City. And he talks about tolerance in this way. And he's paraphrasing another writer, John Anazu. And he says this. He says, tolerance, the Christian version, is neither indifference, we may be appalled at another person's views. Notice that. Nor acceptance. It's neither indifference nor acceptance. It means rather treating the other person with respect, even if we find his or her ideas difficult to endure. That's the kind of tolerance that Christianity actually leaves room for, that allows a society with more than one belief system to flourish. And I think it's actually our Christian roots in our society that have allowed for us to be a pluralistic society where lots of people have different kinds of views. Um, But if that's what tolerance is at its best and well-defined, what happens when someone or a whole group of someones does something that we can no longer tolerate? I call this a tolerance tinderbox. I'm coming up with all kinds of terms today. Um, Tolerance tinderboxes are moments when two belief systems come together and create almost a violent explosion. 
It's when a moment when two belief systems have an explosive encounter where they run into each other. It's an intersection of belief systems where there's a moment in society or something that's happening that requires two belief systems to run into each other. And that's what happens in this story between Mordecai and Haman. Haman, what does his belief system say? His belief system says that I'm God and I should be worshipped as a God because the gods have placed me here. And if you worship me, you're worshipping my gods as well. And if you don't worship me, you're insulting my gods and you're insulting me. That's his belief system as he's walking through the king's gate. In the king's gate, though, you also have Mordecai, who grew up as a Jew. And even though he's pretty far away from his Jewish identity at this point, he still knows one thing. We only worship one God. He said, if there's one thing I remember about being a Jew, it's that I worship one God. And now you have Haman walking down this hallway, and you have Mordecai, and you have a tolerance tinderbox. You have this moment where these two belief systems are about to run into each other, and a decision has to be made about who's going to tolerate whom. What's going to happen when two belief systems come together? And we have all kinds of tolerance tinderboxes in our world today. And I'm not even going to talk about them because it's, it's too much of a tinderbox, so i just leaving them out. Um, you're going to have a chance in your discussion, guys, this week to talk about them in your houses. So uh, we'll see what happens. But here's the thing. We have all kinds of tolerance tinderboxes like this where two different belief systems come together in a moment that creates an explosive encounter. And with all of that in mind, all of that was just built up for this one line. I want us to notice how Haman frames his request to the king. He says this at the very end of that section. He says, it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. He's had this explosion with Mordecai. And now he goes to the king and he says, toleration might have been the law of the land, but I'm telling you right now, it's not worth it anymore. He goes up to him and he says, it might have been in your best interest to tolerate this group and their beliefs before, maybe because of their votes, they didn't vote in the society, maybe because of their votes or because of the taxes they paid, but the benefits of tolerating this group no longer outweigh the cost. Instead of saying, maybe he could have walked up and he said, Maybe we should reframe that law about people worshiping us. <laughs> Maybe that's not working um, and, um, kind of, uh, with what we're trying to do right now. Maybe we should reframe that a little bit. And instead, he says, let's stop being so tolerant. One of the most tolerant societies in history is now saying, let's stop being so tolerant. And I think that's a little bit of what's happening in our own cultural moment. What's happening is that sloppy tolerance, because we never thought well about it, is beginning to slip toward what we might call sharp intolerance of one another, where we're no longer able to be in the same room with people who think or believe differently than us, even if we think they're wrong, right? We're no longer able to inhabit the same spaces. Instead of course correcting toward better tolerance, which allows us to maintain our differences and even think the other person is wrong and disagree, what's happening instead is we find ourselves not even able to associate in real life or on social media with people who think or believe differently than us. Because if you did, it feels like you're surrendering to that. You're surrendering your convictions. It's seen as dangerous to work together with the enemy. We're starting to be this us versus them, and we're moving toward extremes, and we're, we're living in echo chambers, and we're finding ourselves less able to interact with people who are on the opposite end of the spectrum than us with any degree of civility. And so what's happening is that sloppy tolerance is slipping because we never defined it well and we never thought about it well, is slipping toward sharp intolerance. And it's one thing to consider what happens when, there's slop, when sloppy tolerance gives way to sharp intolerance, maybe on social media or Facebook or in our ordinary lives. But what happens when one of the people or groups of people involved in that tinderbox are in a position of power? What happens when one of the people in those tinderboxes are in a position of power? 
Let's read on and find out what happens in verse chapter 3, 9 through 10. It says, if it pleases the king, here's how I think we should respond. Let a decree be issued to simply destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Just I'll read on in a second. What's likely happening here is he's negotiating. He's saying, I know your treasury is emptied because you just lost a terrible campaign with the Greeks. And I think that if I killed all, the, all, all this whole group of people, what I could do is I could actually plunder them, get you the money back you need to get you out of your budget deficit for this year and help you be in a better position for next year. And so that's where he's getting this extremely large sum of money. And notice what the king does in response. It says, so the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. We need to pay attention to what happens here. Because in this one scene, we see a pattern of how injustice has wrecked society for all of history. Instead of asking hard questions about Haman's intentions, notice there's so many ways he could have responded, King Xerxes could have responded here. He could have been like, now, who are you talking about again? He could have been, um, do you think that's a bit of an overreaction? He could have said, what was it for? Why are you doing this? Um, he could have said, is there other ways we could have deal with this? Is there, could we have a conversation? Could we do something else? He doesn't ask anything. Rather, what he does, he takes a signet ring off his finger, and he gives it to Haman. By giving him his signet ring, he's basically giving him the equivalent of his signature today, where he's saying, you can sign my name on anything you want, and it can be approved. So if you think this is a good idea, I'm giving you my signet ring, and you can stamp my approval on that so everybody knows this wasn't just from you, this from me. He gives him a green light to do whatever he wants, which in this case is to unleash a terrible injustice against the Jews. And what we see here, we catch this glimpse of how some of history's greatest injustices have been unleashed in what were once tolerant societies, when instead of challenging Haman's violent intolerance, Xerxes is complicit in it. Instead of stepping back, and we can't expect Haman to do this, but instead of stepping back and challenging Haman's violent intolerance, Xerxes is, is complicit in it. He says nothing. He just goes along with it. What would ultimately be the mass murder of the Jews. And I have to admit, it's hard to read this passage, and I don't think we have to read this passage in this way, but it's hard to read this scene on this side of the Holocaust, on this side of the 20th century, for those of you who have not gotten that far in history class yet, the Holocaust was the ideological and systematic state-sponsored persecution and mass murder of millions of European Jews, as well as millions of others, by the German Nazi regime between 1933 and 1945. And what we have to realize about that is it's easy to think, when we think of this part of history, we, it's easy to think of just Hitler and the way that he was a mastermind behind all of this, and in many ways he was. But what you forget is the hundreds, thousands, millions of people who simply went along with it. The people who gave him their signet ring and said, yeah, I stamp my approval on this, who didn't think twice about it. I recently read a book by Hannah Arendt. She's a journalist and political philosopher from the 20th century. Um, and I've only recently discovered her through an author named Mike Cosper, and I'll talk about him in a second. But the book's called Eichmann in Jerusalem. And what it is, is she's a journalist. She's been sent to Israel to cover the trial of a war criminal named Adolf Eichmann, who had escaped to South America, had essentially been brought back for trial for war crimes in the Holocaust. Because what he did is he worked for Hitler, and his job was simply to uh, find ways to get millions of Jews onto trains to be sent to concentration camps. That was his job. And people were 
Uh, and what she realized as she was following this trial for weeks and months, she says, and what she finds is that this Adolf Eichmann guy wasn't a demonic monster like Hitler. She essentially says he was just an idiot. He never asked questions. He never stopped to say, what's the morality here? Is this a good idea? Should I be participating? Instead, he's like, I'm just showing up for my nine to five. I'm just showing up for work today and I'm clocking in and I'm clocking out. And he's trying to, get, he's trying to promote through the ranks. She says he's a moron. He never stopped to ask questions about what he was being complicit in. Instead of challenging Hitler's violent intolerance, which might have ended his life, he was complicit in it. Just as every Hitler needs an, uh, an Eichmann, every Haman needs a Xerxes. Otherwise, it can't move forward. Injustice could be stopped without that second person or third or fourth or dozens or thousands of people who become complicit in something. And when you look at other moments of violent intolerance throughout history, you can see this same pattern when those on one side of the tolerance tinderbox are in positions of power, and unfortunately, sometimes it's Christians. From ancient Persia to the Third Reich to Birmingham, Alabama. I'm going to summarize the rest for us. Um, so what happens in the rest of this is that a letter is drafted and sent. I'm going to skip that quote for now. A letter is drafted and sent to all 127 provinces to kill and annihilate all the Jews on a single day, 11 months from now, in chapter 3, verse 13. And this is essentially the ticking time bomb in the story. The date has been set. If you've ever seen the show 24, there's that constant uh, timer on the bottom of the show telling you how long it is until the bomb goes off. That's what's happening here. We now know, as we're reading the rest of the story of Esther, 11 months, 9 months, 7 months, 6 months, 3 days, will God act? Will he deliver? That's the tension in this story. That's why I called this episode The Letter, and that's episode 3. I told you it was going to get dark today. <laughs> just as the, I want to end, though, with a few thoughts, just to make sure that we have something that we're leaving with this morning. The Jews were navigating a pluralistic society, and the church is also navigating a pluralistic society in our own cultural moment. There's a key difference here that needs to be understood, is that they were a religious minority, but Christians are actually still a relative majority and often inhabiting positions of power. So sometimes we can actually be on the wrong side of this tolerance tinderbox. But what I want to do, um, I do believe that trend is coming to an end, but I want to end with just three quick thoughts on the church and tolerance in our cultural moment. And the first is this is that the church is actually able to be the most tolerant people on earth. We have the resources as people in the kingdom of God to be the most tolerant people on, on earth in the best sense of the word, in the virtuous sense of the word. Um, and the way that, what that means is that while we have strong convictions as Christians on everything from death to sexuality, we actually don't have to be threatened by those with different views from us. We know that God has things in control. We don't need to be scared of the fact that we're surrounded by people who have different views. We don't need to get into positions of power to make everybody be Christian and share the same view of us. We can persuade people. We can convince people. We can evangelize. We can even tell people they're wrong, which in fact we're supposed to do as Christians, and try to point people to the way, the truth, and the life. But the reality is, is that we can still tolerate them even if they don't agree. We don't coerce our force. Some people believe it's intolerant to think someone is wrong. That's not intolerance. It's intolerance when you don't allow someone to hold a view that you disagree with and when you can get into a position of power to make sure that's true. In the church, by the way, I want to make sure that we know that it's a different story, that as Christians, we're actually supposed to have shared beliefs. 
for the most part, on some essentials, and we're allowed to, uh, we're not, we're actually supposed to, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, to raise one another up and to challenge one another um, to live differently. So it's a little bit different in the church. The second thing, though, is this, is that we can know, as a church, when not to tolerate injustice. We can know when not to tolerate injustice. We don't want to be so tolerant that we allow injustices to be perpetrated or perpetuated in society. Unlike Xerxes, who tolerated Haman's violent intolerance of a religious minority, we can, as Christians, collectively and individually, refuse to tolerate that same kind of injustice in our own day, especially when it's leveled against the marginalized, whether they be babies or border children or people who are black. We're doing whatever we can to avoid taking violent means when it comes to not tolerating injustice. I believe that in the kingdom of God, we are called and challenged to do that. The third thing is this, is that we can endure the most intolerance on earth. We can endure the most intolerance on earth. Just like Mordecai, there will be moments where because of what we believe, we will have to refuse to bow, whether in the literal sense or the metaphorical sense of the word. And as a result, we might find that someone in power will no longer find it in their interest to tolerate us. But the reality is, as Christians, we can accept that because toleration is a privilege that we aren't entitled to. It's one that we understand that this is just a part of life. In fact, for the first 300 years of Christianity, they were not tolerated by the Roman Empire until something called the Edict of Milan was signed in AD 313, about 300 years after Christianity started, that said, we're going to let you guys stay, and we're going to stop persecuting you. For 300 years, Christianity wasn't tolerated. It's a privilege, not something we're entitled to. And I believe that the reason we can do these three three things, the reason we can be the most tolerant people on earth, the reason we can know when not to tolerate injustice, and the reason we can endure the most intolerance on earth is because of the gospel. It's Jesus who makes us this way. Uh, The gospel, what we know is that God had moved in among us in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived, he died, he rose again, and he brought us into something called the kingdom of God where it is safe to do these kinds of things, where we know that in the end, God will be good. And we actually saw that demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus was actually the most tolerant person on earth. He had had extremely strong convictions. He taught on those convictions in ways that his followers could memorize and remember. Um, He had convictions on everything from death to sexuality, but notice what he doesn't do in his ministry. He doesn't force or coerce people to join him. Rather, he invites, he persuades, he speaks, he evangelizes, he invites people to be a part of the kingdom of God that is breaking in. He speaks with authority. He also knew when not to tolerate injustice. He would speak up against those authorities, whether religious or secular, who were perpetuating injustice. There was one time where he walked into the temple, the center of the Jewish world, and he begins flipping tables with a whip because they were closing the doors of the temple to the poor and to the nations, not allowing them to encounter the presence of God. He knows when not to tolerate injustice. And the third thing that we need to see about Jesus is he endured the most intolerance of anyone ever. When people in power realized that it was no longer to their profit to tolerate Jesus, they liked him for a while. It was fine. They let him roam around. But eventually, they insulted him. They spat on him. They conspired against him. And it had him crucified on a Roman cross. And what does the Bible say? He endured the cross, despising the shame, knowing the joy that was set before him and he was raised from the dead. I believe that gospel makes us the most tolerant people on earth. It it makes us to know when not to tolerate injustice. 
and it enables us to endure the most intolerance on earth, just as Jesus did. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Lord, I pray that we remember that we have been brought into the kingdom of God. We have responded to the, the message. We brought into a, a place where it's safe to do the kinds of things we talked about, just as Jesus demonstrated in his own life. Lord, teach us what that looks like. Help us to know how to manage tolerance tinderboxes and how to respond in those moments. Help us to know how to do that individually and as a community with wisdom and courage. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If that teaching moved you or left you with questions, let us know by sending a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast for a new teaching from us every single week.